Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, here with my co-host and Pat Gallagher and our special guest in Janet Marie Smith, Senior Vice President of Planning and Design at the Los Angeles Dodgers and excited to talk to Janet Marie about her start in the industry, uh, all the different things that she's accomplished um, and all the different ballparks she's visited. I'll just start out by saying uh, I was fortunate enough to, to be in a family where we took a bunch of ballpark trips growing up and I've got 25 of 30 on the list. Uh, so I've got five more, Jana Marie. And, and Pat, on the other hand, has built one, not literally, but figuratively, more or less. Um, so I'm honored to be on this, this uh, call today, just talking about the different aspects of design and architecture that go into the ballparks. And we'll, talk, we'll dive in a little bit to uh, what's going on with the different Dodgers renovations right now um, and some of the projects you're working on. But nonetheless, welcome. Thank you. It's always fun to talk about baseball parks. So, uh, Janet Marie, we, we, we've got to introduce you properly. You're the executive vice president of planning and development for the. Yes, Dodgers. thank you. I am. I very do have long, a new title. Very long title, <laughs> which you've had for a number of different organizations. And for people who may not know who you are, I mean, I would say you are, well, I think you should be in the Hall of Fame. Maybe you will be someday. But in terms of making ballparks special, particularly the ones that are beloved in our country, you have your fingerprints pretty much all over them. And so maybe we can, we can sort of start there. Um, you know, I don't know whether you were a kid that uh, played with Legos when you were growing up or how you, uh, I did a little research. I know your father was an architect, but how did you, how did you get into the, how did you decide that you wanted to, to do this? Well, the thing that brought me to baseball really wasn't the allure of baseball itself, but the fact that um, what we now know as Oriole Park at Camden Yards was going to be built in downtown Baltimore. And I'd studied architecture in school and um, just a, I'm a lover of cities. I, I, I have, a, have a degree in urban planning and I always loved working on projects that had a big impact on the city. And I like, I like managing them. I like... Um, not, you know, not designing in a traditional sense, but putting together a team of people that range from architects to planners to landscape architects to graphic designers, historians, and just, you know, weaving together a, a, a story, if you will, with a building. And when I learned that the Orioles were planning to build a baseball park in downtown Baltimore, I thought, wow, that's amazing because it, this would have been the late 80s and it was the first time in uh, generation that a baseball team had eyes wide open, gone into an urban center and said, we want to be part of this. And so that's really what brought me into baseball. I, I happen to love it, but that was really what um, brought me in. And I think that's why I've enjoyed working on the projects that I have is that they all have have a real important place in the, in the city, in the literal heart of the city geographically, in the sort of the spiritual heart of the city as well. You know, I, uh, <clears throat> so I want to ask you a little bit about Larry Lucchino because um, I was involved in just building one ballpark in San Francisco, which was an incredible experience. But I, I had talked to him pretty about, well too, right? Well, thank you. It, it's a, it's a, you know, it's. We hope it's one of those things that sort of does stand the test of time. We hope. I'd say, I'd say you've got what more than twenty years on it. That, that yeah, counts, well, right? <laughs> yeah. But in talking to Larry Lucchino, he, he told me at one point when they were talking about Fenway in um, 
just the task after working on Camden Yards and they're talking about Fenway. And I know for years, the Red Sox were talking about tearing Fenway down, finding a piece of property somewhere, building a new ballpark. And he kind of said, well, wait, 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 wait. All these new ballparks we're talking about, you know, we, to describe them, we say, well, they sort of have the charm of Fenway and Wrigley. And he goes, well, we actually have Fenway. So, um, but how did, how did you, how did you get connected with Larry and, and then move on to the projects at, at not only in Boston, but also in Chicago with Wrigley Field? Well, the first time I worked for Larry was on Camden Yards in Baltimore. And I wrote Larry just a cold letter, you know, I just introduced myself and said something about what I'd done. I'd worked in kind of major urban projects in New York and in Los Angeles that were built around uh, the idea of public space, public open space. And um, I, I just said, you know, it was something I'd really love to work on. Baltimore had been my case study city when I was in urban planning school. So I felt like I knew something about Baltimore, even though I had not lived um, in Charm City, but I knew something about the city and I knew something about the area. They were building Camden Yards and how hard the city had worked to uh, reinvent the, the waterfront. And a collection of destination places with the aquarium, the science center, the convention center. And so my mind, um, the ballpark was just one more reason uh, that uh, Baltimore was creating to bring people downtown. And because uh, the Orioles and the Maryland Stadium Authority, their landlord had already selected HOK as the architect and HOK sport was really well respected for just that, the sports. I think the fact that I didn't have sports on my resume but had a lot of this other um, urban, uh, urban credentials and um, the um, sort of confidence that I was able to convince Larry that I had well you must have been pretty persuasive well I you know I had the ability to you know I think he's trusted that I could I could help guide that team um and our team uh to a place that was commensurate with his goal of trying to make this ballpark feel like Forbes, Evans, Fenway, Wrigley you know all the older ballparks and listen it wasn't just about the charm of the ballpark you know Larry Lucchino had done his homework and one of the things that really struck him was that the two smallest parts in the major leagues, Fenway Park and Wrigley Field consistently had the highest attendance, even though many of the other parts were multi-purpose at the time and had seating of you know, 50, 60, 70,000. And so in his mind, there's something to that, that smaller is better, it was more intimate, it was more uh, conducive for baseball, that uh, fans came out not only for the, the um, competitiveness of those 81 home games a year, but for the camaraderie of just being in a place where you felt sort of the kindred spirit with those around you. So his goals for Camden Yards were very much about that. And he was um, anxious to make certain that um, that this was sort of woven into the fabric of uh, the conversation. And when I interviewed with him, he did a traditional interview, but then he put me in a, the conference room and said, look, why don't you take a couple hours with these drawings and tell me what you think? And so it was a really good way to do an interview because it gave us um, an, a, you know, some hours to discuss what was there. And you know, maybe if we'd been speaking and not speaking the same language, it wouldn't have worked, but we were. And so 
um, that started um, a, a, a sort of a decades-long relationship with Larry. I worked on three uh, or four, depending on how you count them, projects with him. He went on uh, after Camden Yards to create Petco Park for the Padres, and I had a chance to um, engage in that project a, a little bit. I was working for Stan Caston in Atlanta during the time, so I wasn't there all the time. But then when he became president and CEO of the Red Sox, I went to Boston with him and um, worked on the renovation of Fenway. And now that he's uh, the chairman of the AAA uh, Worcester Red Sox, I've got a chance to, uh, to go to Worcester regularly and help him on that AAA ballpark that's gonna open this spring. Jana Marie, as you think about the many ballparks you, you listed, a lot of them are in those downtown spaces, kind of like you mentioned, mm -hmm. and even Petco Park, um, having been there many times and trying to kind of regentrify certain areas of the city, right, depending on the economics um, and just and, and tourism and whatnot. As you think about many of maybe your other colleagues in different parts of, of the sports business industry and, and other ballparks or arenas or, or stadiums, What's the biggest difference between those that are in, you know, in those downtown areas versus the ones that are out in the suburbs? Well, I, of course, I think there's more to work with in the city. I think the more, uh, I, I think the more challenging the project is, the more obvious the answer in many ways myself. You know, I love working on a site where uh, the, the land tells you what to do, whether it's Camden Yards and uh, how the decision to keep the warehouse gave us a, a rationale for doing a very short right field line and uh, taking the seating bowl and curling around left field, or whether it's uh, almost the inverse of that, uh, Dodger Stadium, uh, which where I've been working for Stan Caston now for the last nine years, it's an urban ballpark too, but not a traditional urban ballpark. You know, it sits a stone's throw away from downtown in one direction and beautiful Elysian Park, which is the, one of the largest public parks in America, in the other. And, uh, and yet the, the terrain absolutely tells you how to manage um, that, the growth of that stadium. And to me, um, I don't want to say they're easy problems, but I love uh, kind of like a Ouija board, sort of listening to what's around you and having it tell you what to do. And I think that's the beauty of baseball is that, um, that the outfield configuration uh, can be whatever the site dictates and uh, that the concourses and the seating bowl is the, 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 just the, the atmosphere that you create is really very contextual and that, that I, I like that very much. I'm afraid if you put me out in a greenfield site with no context, I wouldn't know where to start with a blank slate. You know, that wouldn't work for me. I'm not that good. Well, yeah, but there's a lot, you know, a lot of the people who have built ballparks out in the middle used to be a spaceship in the middle of a parking lot somewhere. And now that's sort of an old idea, a new idea. But, you know, Joe Spear, who is a mutual friend, told me one time something about designing. He said, you know, as an architect building something like this, you're really only as good as your client allows you to be. And also as good as they they collaborate because these are not one person shows, they're collaborations, meaning everybody sort of wants something, but it's almost like you're, you're a conductor of a symphony trying to take what everybody wants and blend it together to a design. So talk to that a little bit. I mean, you gotta have some courage and you gotta be, you know, you have to stick up for what you think is right in these designs. 
absolutely. And and it, you have to listen in both directions too. You know, a lot of my job is uh, working with the team and making certain that I represent uh, the needs of concessionaires, groundkeepers, your sponsorship group, your, you know, what do your fans want? Who's your conduit for uh, getting the fans' voices to your ear? Uh, and that's, you know, that's a balancing act too, is to try to figure out how to keep all those constituencies um, heard and how to bring their desires together in something that really feels like it's, um, it, 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 it makes good rational sense and that it's artfully done. And I think that um, there's uh, uh, one of the things about my job that I've really enjoyed is I, I like to think that as uh, though I, as an architect myself, that I'm able to clear the path so that um, real architects that are authoring these buildings uh, have room to really work and to allow their craft to shine and really put a spotlight on what they're doing. And just whether it's uh, Joe Spear and his team in Baltimore and the way they really um, listen to our goals for building this old fashioned ballpark with modern amenities and the way Joe himself um, spent time with me studying postcards and various photographs of parks that you know were torn down long before I was around to study them. Uh, that was sort of that, that was kind of one collaboration and at Dodger Stadium you know with a very different kind of building a 1962 mid-century modern building it's been a real treat to work with people like Tommy Quirk at DIQ and Brenda Levin at Levin Associates um, who's best known for um, historic renovation and though a lot of what we have done has been an extension to this 1960s building most people think of historic rehab as being bricks and steel not the sort of funky concrete pastel colors with landscaping to define the space so I've loved being able to put together a team that was right for the time and the place in the building Let's let's talk a little bit about the renovation versus building something from scratch in a sense, because two totally different projects, um, one might take a little bit longer than the other. And I'll let you answer uh, as to what the listener might guess to to which one might take longer than the other. Um, yeah. And then some cost a little bit more than the other, too. Right. Well, listen, one of the things I've learned is that you can craft any argument that sort of supports what it is that you want to do. So what I would tell you, though, as objectively as I can, is that um, renovations often take longer, especially since the goal um, on all the projects that I've worked on have, has been to keep the building open. So you're working uh, in the off season and it's a series of projects that when strung together, uh, fit together like a Lego puzzle. But but you have to know that going in that you can make that work and you have to know how to make certain that, you know, if things were to change and you weren't in a position to fund a project or if, uh, for whatever reason your government entity ceased to allow you to expand or whatever the criteria might be, you don't want to be left with a snackle tube. So you need to find a fine line between creating a puzzle piece where it all fits together at the end, but a puzzle piece that can stand on its own so that it doesn't look like you just uh, stop mid-track. But that's why renovations often take longer in the sporting world. I don't know that that would be true if we were going to go do the bank renovation. You know, that might happen more quickly because you wouldn't have a season to work around. Um, but always you have the pressure of opening day. I've never worked on a 
on a project for sports that wasn't aiming for some opening day. And I, I, I know that schools and hospitals have the same kind of criteria, so I don't think we're that special in that regard. And I, I certainly think that uh, contractors who are used to big deadlines understand that, but it does make sports different. And um, I've had to kind of learn to work with that because my first projects out of school had everything has a deadline because you don't want it to drag on, but it didn't have the, the deadline and the pressure of an opening day with flags being raised and first pitches being thrown out and um, the start of a 162 game season. How long, how long do the deadlines, how long do you have to make sure that you're, you know, is it three months, four months, five months out in your deadline in your head? knowing that deadline is opening day because your, your well, deadline is not opening what, day. it really depends on what it is and i love the urgency of it you know there's nothing there's nothing like a deadline for getting things done otherwise it just sort of drags on forever and you can rethink it rethink it sometimes it's good just to make decisions and go um i'd say too um that i think the fact that i've gone in and out of sports has been helpful for me i i um uh, while I have huge respect for people who've been in sports, you know, for a long time continuously and have taken ideas from port to port, I, for myself, I feel like some of my uh, best contributions have come from having, uh, uh, you know, worked on other projects and having studied other places, particularly in cities where people congregate and like to be together and um, think about, um, you know, that camaraderie that I spoke of earlier. So I think that's probably, um, though I, it seems as though I've had a nice, long, continuous uh, trajectory. Uh, it feels to me like there've been a lot more, uh, a lot more roller coasters um, than a trajectory. So I think probably it's given me a chance to get to know um, sort of our world better. Well, and you, you learn something with each one. I mean, Absolutely. you know, it, you know and, and you, you bring up something interesting because now we're hopefully coming out of a, pandemic, we hope. And it's ironic that, you know, the design of a lot of the ballparks that are so successful is an intimate design that sort of brings people closer together. Whereas now, you know, we'll eventually get out where we're not, you know, we're not social distancing, but what sort of thoughts, what sort of thoughts as you're, as you're looking at design problems for venues, we don't know what the new normal is going to be yet. But what sort of things are you thinking about that you might not have thought about before the uh, pandemic? Well, one thing that has been a uh, constant in the projects that I've worked on has been trying to find ways and places for people to congregate that's not just shoulder to shoulder in a big seat. Um, of course, Larry put a lot of pressure on us when Camden Yards opened in 1992 to have standing room areas and places where you could uh, have kind of a knot hole gang as we think of in the old days that are in the minor leagues. And so that, uh, that trend has only grown uh, over the years when we, um, 10 years after Camden Yards opened, when I went to work for Larry again in Boston and our challenge was to renovate Fenway Park and to look for novel ways of adding seating capacity to Fenway we came up with this idea of putting seats on top of the Green Monster. Uh, but one of the things I always admired about um, Larry's decision-making is when uh, we worked up several alternatives and we took him an option uh, that Chuck Izzo at DIQ had developed to do a 
a drink rail, a bar stool, standing room behind it. Um, and we knew we could only put about half the seats using that configuration as a traditional seat. Larry still understood and advocated that we take that approach because there was more camaraderie, it was more unique, the novelty wouldn't wear off. And our concern with a traditional stadium seat is that once the newness wore off, well, even if it was on top of the green monsters, just another outfield seat. So the charge that Stan has given to me in, a, in, in Los Angeles has been very similar. You know, Dodger Stadium has 56,000 perfectly positioned seats, but everybody says they have great sight lines, but Dodger Stadium really does, but nobody wants to watch a game. I should say nobody. People, our fans don't typically sit for nine innings anymore. Even, even those that still keep score are not always sitting for nine innings. So our challenge has been to find more communal areas, more social areas, kind of massage that perfect seating bowl. So to your question about COVID, I think the interesting thing is the counterintuitive though it sounds using the word social area, places for mingling and mixing, those actually may in the time of COVID be some of the best places to watch a game because it's easy to segregate areas within that and give people the elasticity that this sort of new idea of your own pod, maybe it's a pod of two, maybe it's a pod of eight, but it's a pod that you've put together and people that through a health uh, lens you're comfortable with being with. And um, I think some of these areas lend themselves better to doing that than the big seating. And just being able to circulate around, I mean, one of the things about the park that uh, we built in San Francisco was that um, a lot of people said, look, I, yeah, I sit in my seat for a while, but I want to get up and and so the ability to actually walk around, you know, walk around, look and see what's going on somewhere. I mean, you know, I'd like to, we'd all like to think in baseball that people sit in their seat and are riveted to every play, which they're not. It's the experience of being able to go and meet people. And, um, you know, Dodger Stadium is a classic. I mean, I think uh, Walter O'Malley had some architectural blood in his running his through his veins when they decided when they decided but now you're going to update Dodger Stadium are you going to do things to increase the circulation are you going to encourage people to get up and and walk around yes we can't wait to get fans in there to see the things that we we did in 2020 we added uh five new elevators four new escalators we moved the uh perimeter fencing out about 30 feet in at every level and we connected uh, everything from the top of the park to the reserve level, to the club, to the loge, the pavilions, so that there is a complete 360 around Dodger Stadium, uh, even though it's a hundred feet from the field level up to the top of the park for those glorious views, but now you can get there easily. So we um, have enjoyed hosting things like voting and COVID testing and now the vaccinations at Dodger Stadium, but we don't let people take advantage of all that circulation just yet. So we can't wait for baseball to come back with fans. Janet, as you think about designing the, the ballpark or even renovations, um, knowing that nothing comes for free, it's always going to cost money and you have to figure out almost how do you make up that revenue as quickly as possible. And if someone says, well, hey, design this to have less seats, which in theory means less revenue, less bodies, you know, how do you go about learning 
um, from all the different areas that you, to get different perspectives, to understand where someone, how, how a decision you make is going to affect one, two, three, four, five other departments uh, in their daily work? Well, we, we've gotten rid of seats, but not capacity. So that's a really important distinction. Um, all of our restrooms, our exiting, our concourse widths, our the number of points of sale, um, any measure through which you would say, how many people can I safely have in this park? It's still 56,000. We've converted the seats at Dodger Stadium to areas where you have bar stools, drink rails, standing room, uh, group areas. And that's been kind of the magic of what we've done is it's still 56,000. It's just different than if you were putting your fanny in a traditional stadium chair. And you can't ignore these other things. Listen, the, you know, it, it's the ticket revenue is important to driving our business, but so is the, so are the sponsorship. So is uh, the ability to present fans with uh, other things that they would enjoy doing, whether it's special clubs, whether it's special foods, whether it's retail. And I guess one thing that I particularly enjoyed about my job is I figured out a long time ago that if people are having fun, they're there longer, more often, they're spending their money. They don't think of it as you looking for revenue producing things. You, you, you do, you know, you know, there's some forms you get in where you need to present it that way because you've got to present a balanced performance and the ability to uh, offset the cost when you're doing a big, huge capital project like this. So you certainly look at the revenue side, but the best way to revenue to measure the revenue side is are you putting something out there that makes fans want to be there? You know, Janet, you're, you, you may screw this up, but as a, as a giant, we always used to, you know, kid the Dodger fans about showing up in the third inning and then leaving to beat the traffic in the eighth inning. Maybe you're going to, maybe you're going to solve all that. Maybe there's going to be so many things that people are going to want to do that you're going to keep them there. Well, we really have worked hard on that. And Pat, that's one of the reasons this vertical circulation was so important because before we had the elevators and escalators, um, Dodger Stadium was intended to have every fan enter on the level that their seat was on. There were very few ways to move between levels. And our studies showed that the average fan, excuse me, that the, the, the average fan spent an average of 20 minutes from the time they got out of whatever mode of transit they, whether they had driven, whether they had walked through our gates, uh, whether they had taken a ride share, uh, only those on the Metro bus were spared this. It, almost anyone else was navigating through our parking lot. You know, in their minds, they'd arrived on time, but because we didn't have the ability to let them enter the gate nearest them, um, they were wasting time in the parking lots. Um, so now having widened the perimeter, put the vertical, the elevators and the escalators and additional stairs in, our, in, our plan is for fans to enter whatever gate is closest to them and then navigate inside the park to their seat with many ways of watching the game as you move through Dodger Stadium. So we're especially excited about that and we're going to be particularly unhappy if all these COVID rules foul us up and send us back to 1962 because it wasn't the plan. <laughs> we'll get, we, 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 we have to get back to some version of normal, whatever normal to. is going to be. 
So, Janet Marie, I got to ask you about one person that we did share in common, and it's Frank Robinson, who um, was out here in San Francisco for a number of years. And I know that you um, not only came in contact with him, but really had interaction with him. And he was, you know, he he was a um, he, he was a tough guy, but he was a very um, uh, open to new ideas. Tell me about just. Any thoughts you have about Frank and, and, well, and, and his help? Well, I do have a great Frank Robinson uh, um, story about Camden Yards. He was the Orioles manager uh, when we were planning Oriole Park at Camden Yards. And he was especially interested in this idea that Larry had championed of having an asymmetrical playing field, seats all the way around the playing field, a small, tight, foul territory. As the manager, he was keenly interested and making certain that it was a fair park. If I heard him say it once, I heard him say it 50 times. It needed to play fair. It had, couldn't favor hitters over pitchers. It couldn't favor lefties over righties. So he really cared about that wearing his manager hat. But he also was keenly interested in how interested we were about these old fashioned ballparks. So think about it, Larry and I could yap on forever about how interesting they appeared and Larry knew Forbes of course from growing up in Pittsburgh but mostly I knew these from having studied them Frank knew them having played them he played in those parts like he he played that 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 rising terrain at Crossley Field he could speak with credibility that neither of us could about what it meant to have fans yelling in your ear and what it a difference it was to have the hometown crowd there to support you all the time. And that was so useful and instructive. It was useful because it taught me things that I never could have learned from the kind of independent research that I was doing uh, with books and photographs and the visits to the only parks that were left of that era, Wrigley, Fenway, Tiger, and, and Comiskey were still around. They weren't in use, but it was still around. So, um, he taught me a lot, but he also helped us a lot because he's Frank Robinson, right? He's Frank Robinson. So, you know, when, when you're trying to convince a skeptical public about what you're doing, remember Camden Yards was the first of these parks of that generation that uh, got out of the sort of perfect mold of the left field side looking like the right field side and the the, the fence heights all being the same and all that, the horseshoe and all that kind of stuff. So Frank could speak to that with credibility. And believe me, there were plenty of people, some of them with very important platforms. There were journalists um, at the, you know, one, one at the Evening Sun in particular, who just really thought saving the warehouse was a bad, bad decision. You know, why would we do this? And so having someone like Frank who, took an interest and was willing to be visible and vocal really made a difference, I feel, in the way uh, people looked at what we were doing, as well as making a huge difference in, in the reality of what came to pass. Janet Marie, you know, you, you talked about the playing capacity and, and being a former baseball player, there's nothing worse than being in the seventh inning in right field and looking at directly at the sun when the fly ball is coming at you, knowing that the game's on the line, right? And so I, I think uh, obviously, that's one just one consideration, uh, but the environment you mentioned is, is such uh, a key 
you know, consideration when you're thinking about um, the difference between a AAA ballpark versus a spring training ballpark versus, you know, a major league baseball um, stadium, what are some of the different considerations you have to take into account when you're looking at those smaller capacity venues um, or smaller seat venues, as you mentioned, versus one that, that has a lot more and multiple decks and, and whatnot? Well, it's really, I think, a lot of fun to look at the smaller ones because you can imagine um, a more personal experience with the game. And so I think we all try to think of it that way. You, you always want to keep your fan engaged with the game itself. But in a larger venue, you know you're going to rely more on scoreboards and the entertainment between innings and, um, and, and things that will keep fans excited about being there in a smaller venue like you would find in spring training or in the minor leagues. It's all about keeping the fan in the game, the game itself, you know, and I think that um, that requires thinking of things a little bit differently. It's a, it's just a more personal experience, I, I feel. So Janet Marie, we, you know, we have a lot of our audience are people uh, in the business who are looking to grow in the business. And so if you had to give any advice to people who might be in the, you know, sort of the, the architectural design um, development sort of uh, phase and, and they wanted to uh, sort of make their mark, what would, you, what would you tell them? How would you advise them? I, I would say to uh, the, the most important thing is to uh, figure out how to bring something new to the table, you know, how, how to look at things differently than just what's been done before. Um, and I think, you know, whether you're, whether you're, it's something from the business world, whether it's something from, you know, the a, a marketing, public relations, whether it's something in terms of the way entertainment um, is advancing, uh, the sport is evolving for sure. And our, uh, you know, we wouldn't be having all these conversations about the time clock and the pace of the game and all these things if we weren't concerned about keeping it relevant uh, to a younger generation and growing the audience. And so I think that's a place to really, to really focus on is it's the experience. You know, the building ends up simply being a stage on which something else can happen. So I think bringing something to the table about how to design that that experience so that it's uh, engaging would be the way I would look at it if I were knocking on Larry Lucchino's door today. <laughs> well, you know, you, I heard you describe uh, Camden Yards uh, as, as, as your baby. And so in a sense, a lot of these projects you work on are sort of like your babies. And I, I remember talking to architects, they, you know, they work on a project like this, that's, it's different than building a hospital or it's different than building a, uh, an overpass. This is something that, that really lives and breathes and you sort of have to design it, put your heart and soul into it. Then you sort of have to give it away and move on to the next one. So- No, you never give them away. You get to go back and enjoy it. That's, <laughs> that's the thing I love about it. There's actually nothing more freeing than knowing that you can watch nine innings of baseball and you're not responsible for anything there. So I, I actually have loved that about my projects that um, you do get to enjoy them. Pat, um, Pat, knows, 
Pat knows too well the amount of nine inning games he probably never saw a pitch of, right? Well, yeah. That's very true. Do not watch every pitch, that's for sure. Jana Marie, one, one question as we wrap up. Uh, obviously, you don't you can't pick a favorite stadium uh, on this podcast. We, we know that that's probably not an answer you'll give us. But if you could give us one that you wish you could have worked on, uh, whether it was being built or, um, you know, needs to be renovated or whatever the case might be, what's, what's, what's a project that you kind of always had your eye on that you think like, wow, that could be really cool or a really cool city? Oh, I think um, oh, my dream job would be to have, be asked to do something like um, fix up Rickwood Field um, in Birmingham. You know, some of these old Negro League parks that are still with us are so charming and just so beautiful. And I, I think one of the things that's really a challenge, uh, even at the major league level with new parks, is how, how, to, how, how do you do more than play baseball? How do you justify keeping a building alive, especially when, um, you know, when it's no longer home to its original purpose? And, but still, you, you walk in a place like that and you just, um, it just uh, oozes with charm and history and the walls talk to you. And it's just, a, um, I think it's just a magical feeling. So I am always so excited when I meet a, a park that's still sort of waiting for a little TLC. Well, we're all gonna watch, you know, we're gonna watch what's happening at Dodger Stadium and and have an opportunity to go see, you know, see your, see you handling your newest baby. Um, because well, we can't wait to have fans back. I can't tell you. Stan has been, um, I think, more disappointed than anyone else that we just couldn't wait to cut the ribbon on this in 2020. And we were weeks away from um, completing that project when um, our season was postponed. So. Here we are on the eve of yet another baseball season, just holding our breath. And, um, you know, of course, our first concern is that everyone is safe and healthy and we get, uh, we get, get, get our normal back. But the minute that happens, we can't wait to be the place where people, people come and celebrate sort of being together again. Well, they certainly have a reason to celebrate from last season. So yes, we do. The world champion Los Angeles Dodgers. You are right about that. You couldn't have, you know, everything kind of happens for a reason in a, in a way, some, some shape or form, but you have a pretty good reason to invite people back. Uh, Absolutely. Well, we want to do it again. Cause can you imagine 56,000 people for the world series that we walk away with it and just be, be fabulous. So uh, we're, we're jazzed about that for sure. Proud, oh, proud, of proud of the 2020 season. In many ways, it was harder, I think, for the team than um, any other season. And so, um, yeah, we're ready for 2021. Well, I, I know uh, I know many are, are definitely going to be excited for it. Um, you know, we appreciate your thoughts, insight, advice into your world of planning uh, stadiums and designing and uh, just a little bit of the, as Pat likes to say, the peek behind the curtain as to where the magic happens. Did I get that right, Pat? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you make the magic happen. I mean, the, the, the places that Jenna Marie is, when I say she's got her fingerprints all over, all, all have some magic. She's got to figure out what that magic is and how to bring it out. And that's the 
that's the task. An amazing, amazing legacy. It's been, it's been fun, as I know you know. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk to you again here soon. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me.